So I've titled this morning's, morning's message, Taming the Tongue, Part 2. So we're going to be in James chapter 2. Is this one with me? Okay, let's see here. Matt said, do that, and then he said, do this. Yep, there it goes. Okay, so let me get to James. Bible kind of opens naturally there now. Spending a lot of time there in James. There we go. Okay, so... If you remember from James 3, 1 through 6, um, we saw very clearly that we have a need, a desperate need, I might even add, for the taming of our tongue. Amen? Um, I can promise you there's not a person here this morning who hasn't sinned in what they have said, and I would probably say that on many occasions, unfortunately. Now, in James chapter 3, Again, this is by way of reminder. In James chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, James showed how something very small, like the bit in the horse's mouth and a rudder on a ship, though they are very small by comparison to the horse or to the ship, these things both can boast of doing great things. Namely, they can boast of the fact that they have controlling influence over much larger, much more powerful things, such as a horse or such as a ship on the water, and that when under the right hand of leadership, when under the right hand of leadership, both of these can be used for much good. And as I mentioned then, it seems to me that God was there in letting us know that our tongue, which is also a very small instrument in comparison to the size of our body, when under the direction of the right master, under the direction of the lordship of Jesus Christ, can too be used for good purposes and accomplish that for which he intended when he graciously saved us by grace through faith. You know, those good works that we were, that have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Remember Ephesians chapter 2.10, right? We were saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest anyone boast, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, but 2.10, God has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. So when he saves us, he becomes alive in us, and we start moving out with the Spirit of God now residing in us to accomplish the very works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in. But then, in verse 5, James uh, makes a comparison with the tongue, and indicates for us that the human tongue is unfortunately a very prideful thing, and that it, like the bit and the rudder, it too boasts of great things. But unfortunately, as we all know too well, unlike the bit and the rudder, this small thing, the human tongue, and its boasting, instead of leading to good purposes, oftentimes leads to destruction. And James is making that very clear. We saw that very clearly in James chapter 3 verse 5, right? He said, so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So clearly, his illustrative motif is to show how something small like the tongue, that of human speech, where we see it put on display, can have tremendous power for destruction. 
such as a forest set ablaze by just a small spark of fire, and this is what the human tongue is like. Now, unfortunately for the likes of us humans who have such tongues, James proceeds in verse 6 to confirm this fact for us when he says there in verse 6, he says, and the tongue is a fire. Are you encouraged yet this morning? And your tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The human tongue, your tongue, as small as it is, is the source of all iniquity in all the world over. Now, you may be saying, how could my tongue be all that bad, right? I mean, it's, I'm not that bad of a person. I know people that do things worse than I do, right? But lest we forget, we also saw last week from the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and verse 35, where Jesus said, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? Now Jesus is speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to religious Pharisees. He's speaking to people who think they're religious. They have a form of religion, but they're denying the power of, they're denying the reality that they actually know God through their living. And this is how Jesus speaks to them. You brood of vipers. We never see Jesus going to the unconverted and saying, oh, you brood of vipers. So we would never begin our evangelistic endeavors with such a motif, right? Of course not. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. The mouth speaks out of that which fills your heart. So as you make observation of yourself, see right here, the good man brings out of his good treasure. His good treasure here is equated to the heart. This is where the good person, the truly religious person, the person who truly knows God, when they bring things out of their good treasure, out of their heart, which you hear through their speech, this is where they go to get it out of a good treasure. What makes a good treasure? What makes a heart a good treasure? That must be conversion. That must be the will of God, right? They bring out what is good. And the evil person, and he's already referred to them as being evil. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure, again, relating to the heart, what is evil. The boastful tongue that is like a fire that can and will destroy your life is only speaking and saying things that already fill your heart. Your tongue puts on display for all to see the true condition of your heart. Do you truly know God? Are you truly a person of the Lord? Is, are you truly Christ's disciple or aren't you? We have a psalm like Psalm 12, 1 through 4. Landon pointed this out to me a few weeks ago. Where are you, Landon? You're somewhere in here. I saw you right there. And I said, that's good, didn't I? I said, wow, that's good. 
was in Bible study on a Sunday night. He said, check this out. And he showed me Psalm 12, 1 through 4. So check it out, Psalm 12, 1 through 4. Notice what it shows us about unconverted hearts and how they have no capacity or desire to have hearts and thus tongues under the leadership and control of the good captain, the good master. Notice. Psalmist writes, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. Now, I believe the they here, I believe the they here is, a, is making reference right back to the nearest antecedent, which is the sons of men, not to the godly man. They is making reference to the sons of men. Now, the godly men are ceasing. There's less and less of them amongst the sons of men, amongst the sons of those who do not fear God. Their numbers are being lessened. They seem to be ceasing. They're disappearing from among the people of the world. They, the, the people of the world, the unconverted people, notice verse 2, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Verse 3, the psalmist says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. This is how the psalmist views those who speak things that are contrary to the standards of God with regard to anything and everything. From the heart of the psalmist, there's one way, there's God's way. And he wants God's name to be renowned throughout the earth. And he's saying, Lord, might you even cut off all the lips that speak despicable things and lies against your truth. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things. Almost sounds like what James said, right? The tongue boasts of great things. Perhaps James had this psalm in mind. The tongue that speaks of great things. Cut that off. Who have said, notice what they say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? The unconverted heart is the captain of their own fate their own master, and thus always speaks out of that which fills their heart. And the world of iniquity is evidenced from hearts that are lost. And this oftentimes is the prevailing attitude of those whenever you start to mention things regarding God's standards, God's morality, rights and what's wrong. We are Lord over ourselves. We will prevail. We will speak and live and do as we so please. Is what flattering lips often say. And thus, the words of Jesus, again, being very revealing, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which fills the heart. The evil person brings out of his treasure what is evil. The truth is, they can't. They, the unconverted heart, unsaved people, people speak out of that which fills their heart, and what fills their heart is that which is completely antithetical to the word of God. Most often. 
They might affirm, yes, you want to be good to others for goodness' sake. Well, if you think about that, that's an affront to God. We're, as Christians, we're not being good for goodness' sake. We're trying to be obedient to the Lord for the glory of the only true and living God. There's a huge difference. And the church needs to wake up and recognize that difference. It's very significant. It's not just some minor shift of philosophy. It's a huge difference. God in the scripture says that he would share his glory with who? No one. And by the way, who is goodness sake? By the way, goodness is sake. What's goodness? How do we even know what goodness is? Apart from an infinite God who established what is good and what's bad, how would we ever even know what goodness sake would be, right? Until we become gods of our own makings. We become the master of our own ships. Who is Lord over us? We become the standard bearer of what goodness sake is as humans. And so we fall in love with ourselves, and we make theologies that comfort our own evil desires. That's what we do as humans. We see this all over the place. But where do we see this most prevalent in our culture today? There are many places and many ways in which this is seen, but none stands out as obvious as our culture's obsession with sexually deviant behavior. Have you noticed that? All the culture rave is the inclusion of sexually perverted activity, right? I mean, we see this everywhere. I think it's what we refer to as wokeness. We need to be woke, really. Well, what we need to be woke from is a dungeon of sin because our depraved hearts are held captive there. And we need the mercy of God through the preaching of the gospel to reach people who can open spiritually blind eyes to truly see for the first time ever and to be alivened unto God, wherein they can freely choose to do things that are pleasing to God. That's when you're really awake. Amen? Amen. That's when you're awake. Yet, think about this, after the Apostle Paul clearly stated in Romans 1 that the practice of homosexual behavior was, and he makes this list, he said, sinful lust... And I'm pulling words that were right out of the New American Standard here. Impurity, dishonoring, now this isn't a word either, but a lie of the devil, degrading passions, unnatural, and indecent. And was the result of suppressing God's truth, having been given over to a, as it said, depraved mind, mind, which is why people do things that the Word of God says is an abomination, and as it also says, is not proper. Yet with all of this being self-evident and a part of divine revelation, meaning that God Almighty has spoken, notice what unconverted hearts, and perhaps even some claiming to be converted, still say today, some 2,000 years later, as they were saying then. Romans 1.32, which kind of is the capstone on that chapter in that section. It says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, and if you go back into the Old Testament, you would see that such practices were worthy of death. They not only do the same, which, by the way, was a laundry list of several sinful vices from verses 29 down through verse 30, 
It says, but also, and here it is, watch this, give hearty approval to those who practice them. The tongue speaks out of that which fills the heart. Hearty approval to sinful behavior. In my estimation, that's not how we speak life. Yet the tongue speaks from that which fills the heart. And so we just naturally say what we believe, and what we believe fills our heart, and where we get our beliefs is either from being a child of God and having the Word of God wherein we have truth, or from ourselves and from our own thinking. Our own Bible, which is our own conscience. We make up what's goodness' sake. So instead of saying things like, just leave them alone and let them love who they want to love, right? I mean, after all, what's it going to hurt them? The church is the church, the state is the state. Just leave well enough, leave well enough alone, right? And I think instead of saying those kinds of things, we just simply need to tell them the truth in love. Because listen, people are going to do what they're going to do regardless of what you say. So if you get tacit approval to what they're doing... You're not speaking life. Oh, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. I've heard this one before. I just don't want to hurt their feelings. After all, God's the one who saves. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt them. You know, I was thinking about this in the context, in a different context. Like, we as Christians, one of the most core things to our being is the recognition that there is one true and living God, right? And Jesus Christ is his son, right? Well, every time an atheist says there is no God, oh, my feelings just got so hurt. Right? I mean, what a hurtful thing to speak something that would cut somebody to the core of who they are as a person. Their identity. The only thing we make big issues out of are these sexual deviant issues. Why? I believe because it's made up of doctrines of demons and it cuts exactly against Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God made them male and female. The very image of God in which he made Adam and Eve in his image brought them together to be the formation of a society and put his blessing on that union, that's the place where Satan and doctrines of demons cut the most. And we see this very alive and well in our culture today. Every other issue where somebody's feelings gets hurt, it's not even mentioned. It doesn't matter. Get over your feelings, right? That's what we, but on this issue, it's cutting against the very nature and image of God. And this is why we say, yeah, we can't make you do anything. You're free to go do anything you want. However, I need to speak life to you, and the truth is that no immoral, sexually immoral person will inherit the kingdom of God. That's biblical truth. Now, I kind of said that harshly. I wouldn't say it like that when I'm talking with somebody. I wouldn't be like, I'd be like, hey, let me just share with you from the scriptures. And I would kindly share some things and let them know that there is heaven and there is hell according to this standard of truth. This is the biblical worldview. And the only way we can maintain a biblical worldview consistently is to speak truth in love in these issues. We have to. Romans 1.16 says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have to speak light into darkness and allow God to open spiritually blind eyes through the preaching of the gospel. That's how people get saved. And we see in, I think it's Galatians 2, and such were some of you. 
The good news is that God's saving power reaches all sinners as he pleases. And so we, as heralds of the truth, use these instruments, this tongue that's controlled to a heart, that's been set ablaze by the living God to speak things that are truth. We've got to make certain as Christians we're not the proverbial frog in the kettle and we're getting ourselves boiled down to the point to where we're just saying, oh, just get, live, you know, get along to get along. Don't, don't say anything. It may hurt their feelings. Well, I can't be concerned if it hurts their feelings. I need to be concerned about the, their eternal destiny. And I think James in this context, is going to make very clear that the way we use our tongues is evident to what's truly in the heart. I think that we're going to see that very clearly this morning. So in James chapter 3, verse 6, he just puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, and the tongue is a fire. If you've never believed in the total depravity of man, which is a biblical worldview standard, which we see all throughout the scriptures, if you don't believe in the total depravity of man, you, you're not going to be able to live with a biblical worldview. The tongue is a fire. The heart that's opposed to God is set ablaze to do all sorts of evil. It's the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Doctrines of demons. So if you, again, if you're not agreeing with a biblical worldview and total depravity, you're going to have a hard time accepting the teaching of James. So if you think about it, the church of Jesus Christ should be a compilation of individuals all possessing the ability to use their tongue for what? For good, like a bit and a rudder, when under the control of the right master. For good, to lovingly say what God has first said about everything pertaining to life and godliness. However, in verses 7 and 8, James continues and he shows us just how impossible a task the taming of the tongue actually is apart from the work of God. Notice verse 7. He's going to use an analogy here. Notice what he says. He says, For every species of beast and birds, of, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. I mean, God's word tells us that every beast of nature can be tamed by man. James here is portraying the reality that, that man was put there to rule the creatures, as God mentioned in Genesis 1.26, when he said, let, them make, let us make man in our image according to likeness. And he said, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and everything on the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26. James is saying every species of beast and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed. Man has found a way to tame all these creatures as God put them in charge over. Now, most of us have probably been to the circus at some point in our lives, right? You ever been to the circus? Maybe once, twice. Have you ever watched those lions, and the tigers, the bears? The elephants, monkeys, dogs, c 
cats, I mean, if you can tame a cat, you, you can almost tame anything, right? I mean, come on. All sorts of animals under the control of a trainer. Have you ever been to SeaWorld? Seen Shamu? I mean, think about this. How? How? What do you say to that big fish? Hey, man, I'm going to give you a piece of, of, of food way up here, but you've got to jump. I mean, how do you communicate that? How do you figure out how to tame these things? It's absolutely amazing. Have you ever seen shows on the big screen like Big Ben or Lassie or Flipper, Mr. Ed? That may outdate some of you. Any others? Can you think of any? There was one with the dogs. I can't remember. My, what was the one with the dogs? Ren Tin Tin. All kinds of shows where there's these amazing animals uh, that have been tamed. And James is wanting to highlight the fact that the wildest, smartest, fastest, most powerful, most elusive creatures are subject to man's taming. And if we're honest with ourselves, we must agree that this is very impressive indeed, right? I mean, let's be honest. I am super impressed when I give consideration of that and every time I see those things happen. However, however, the very trainer who cracks the whip and controls those beasts with a command, as awe-inspiring as that is, is still unable to control and tame his own tongue. Verse 8. No one can tame the tongue. And if we're honest, we need to admit that that's just as amazing. And perhaps even ask, well, why? Why is it a restless evil full of deadly poison? Clearly, when man fell into sin in the garden, he lost his ability to properly govern himself, I would say. James is telling us here that the sinful human heart, which is made manifest by the tongue, is more savage than all the beasts of the earth. Full of deadly poison and restless. This is the human heart. Again, what a commentary on the total depravity of man. Again, giving significance to what we saw when Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Full of deadly poison and a restless evil. Jeremiah the prophet said it this way in Jeremiah 17, 9. He said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, have you ever, just with yourself, have you ever wondered why you have some of the thoughts that you have in secret? Have you ever wondered why you do and say some of the things that you do and say that you wish you didn't do or say? Where did that come from? A biblical worldview lets us know that we were conceived in iniquity and born in sin. All human hearts are desperately sick. The Song of Solomon in his ode to man in Ecclesiastes 9.3, he said it this way, he said, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. Evil 
and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. God's Word tells us no one can tame the tongue. James 3.8 Untamed tongues are connected to restless fleshly hearts full of evil and insanity, deadly poison. An observation of this reality was, was observed by a 19th century novelist, Washington Irvin, who said, a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows keener with consistent use. Now, thankfully, God's Word provides a solution. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel of grace. And it's when God removes a heart of stone and gives a person a new heart, a heart that has been released from the bondage of sin, that domain of darkness, and is now truly free to love, serve, and obey God from their new hearts with a new master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And when and only when a person truly gets saved by God alone are we able to begin the process of living under the power and control of the good captain of our soul who will then direct our hearts as with a bit or a rudder and thus use our tongues for the good purpose for which he saved us. Amen? There is good news in light of all that bad news of the depravity of the heart, evidenced and put on display by poisonous tongues. God is in the business of saving, and he uses the preached gospel to achieve those ends. Wokeness will save nobody. They need truth in love. This is why in verses 9 through 12, James is going to let the brethren know that their behavior, their actions, their deeds, the things they say, need be and must be consistent with one claiming to be in the faith. As they were claiming in, oh, James chapter 2, remember, we're not unrelated or yet unconnected from our broader context. Let's keep that in mind as well. Look at verses 9 and 10. James 3, 9 and 10. He says in verse 9, With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, our tongue, our hearts, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And again, he's writing to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greeting. But James says clearly, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he clearly is not assuming that everybody that's within this category that he's using of brethren, loosely, is genuinely in the faith. He was arguing pretty sternly and convincingly with them in chapter 2 that just claiming to have faith without the evidential good works was dead. It was a non-saving faith. If you remember from chapter 2, James very articulately laid that out for them. My brethren, he says, these things ought not be this way. So here in verse 9, James reminds his readers of the Genesis account of man being made in the image of God, made in the likeness of God. And this is why I said this is the area where doctrines of demons strike most viciously. The destruction of, of husbands and wives. 
The divorce rate we see is as astronomical. Broken lives everywhere. Uh, a husband and wife in Christ are to image Christ and his bride, the church. Sexuality is that which is defined by God within the scriptures. And that is being assailed on every front. Not just now. This was happening, this was happening from the very beginning. You remember Noah, the reason for the flood? Every man did what was right in his own what? Heart. And so God brought a flood and wiped out all of humanity, sorry that he had even created them in the beginning. But one man found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That was Noah. And through Noah and his family, he repopulates the entire earth. And he puts a rainbow in the sky in order to promise that he'll never flood the earth again. The rainbow has been what? It's been stolen from us. To attack something was, that's dealing with the very image and likeness of God from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Doctrines of demons are attacking the truth of God in this area, and they have been from the beginning. It's nothing new under the sun. Remember Sodom? Remember Gomorrah? He used to have different ways of showing his judgments. But there is a day coming. I've read Revelation 19 and 20. There is a day coming when the judgment of God will be revealed in a final act when the Son of Man returns, the sword strapped to his thigh, and he will slay the nations in justice. That's what Revelation 19 and 20 clearly teach us. This is why it's so urgent that we speak truth and love and communicate the gospel clearly and plainly, without equivocation, without nuancing it to the point to where everybody gets in. Narrow is the way that leads to life, Jesus said. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Never use your tongue in a broad way that might lead somebody to destruction. Give them the gospel. Show them the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It is a narrow way. And yes, you must die to yourself. Yes, you must give up your immorality and accept the Lord Jesus Christ and God's standards for morality. Yes, that's what He demands. But He is good. And never forget, and such were some of you, God is in the business of converting fallen human hearts such as mine. I had a restless, evil heart. And in October of 1988, God reached into this heart and he converted it for his good. And I'll never forget that day. You need never forget your day as well. And let him use your life as a light that shines brightly because we are living in times of darkness. We had a reprieve here in America for maybe some 200 years because we were founded upon Judeo-Christian principles and everybody in principle was kind of like a Christian, right? We were like a Christian nation. Well, that's a farce. No, there's not a Christian nation. People are born, conceived in iniquity and born in sin. They need the Lord. They need the preaching of the gospel. Today more than ever. Remember, it's God who lets us know that this kind of behavior is not befitting a child of God. James is letting us know that it's inconsistent with who God is making you to be. Blessing our Lord and Father and cursing people who have been made in His image is not reflective of a heart that's been truly born again by the living 
God. This is what James is letting these brethren know. And we need always remember that God is the one who's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must always remember these things ought not be this way amongst people who claim to be children of God. And James is going to show us also that not only is that something they ought not do, he's going to use some analogies and he's going to show that that's something that they should not and cannot do ultimately. Notice verse 11. He's proving his point here using some analogies. He says in verse 11, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? So again, if you go back to verse 10, the it is the tongue, it's the fountain, and with it flows blessings to the Lord and curses to people. And so when he gets to 11, he's saying, Does a fountain, that's the human tongue, the human heart, send out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water, the obvious answer would be what? So why do we create straw men to try to demonstrate that that is not a no, but it sometimes? I mean, it's what we do. We're so, in our desire to justify our sin, we get so creative in our own thinking and in our own minds. We, we come up with with analogies of our own where, well, really, well, really, it's not a hard no, it's a soft no. I just see it as a no. It's just no. In verse 12, he says, and uses another but similar, he says, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or vine produce figs? The obvious answer is, again, no, nor can salt water produce fresh. The only acceptable answer here to all of these questions is no. James has here made his theology of chapter 2 that dead faith is a non-saving faith, if you will, like an airtight apologetic. Because tongues are connected to hearts. Hearts are the things that get saved and profess faith. And dead faith is a non-saving faith. A living faith is demonstrated by works which comes from a heart that looks like something through the mouth. Fig trees do not produce olives. Vines do not and never produce figs. Salt water cannot and never would produce fresh water. James is here in essence saying... Brethren, verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, he's giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, but only God truly knows the heart. Can a fig tree, my brethren, do these things? The answer is a resounding no. And almost immediately the human mind starts having thoughts like, well, then are you saying by implication that Christians will never sin? Right? And we start coming up with some really hard and fast conceptions that might try to find a way to wiggle around the truth that James, which is under divine revelation, has laid on us 
as brethren some 2,000 years later. And we must answer the, these questions in a resounding no, this isn't, this isn't true. So what is this saying about my heart? Because sometimes I see things coming out of my mouth and my actions being that which isn't consistent with who I'm claiming to be, which is a child of God. I'm claiming to be a child of God, but I look at my life, like James said in James chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, I'm claiming to be something, but when I look at the mirror, the mirror of Scripture, I see what it says. I see that I'm a person that's in need of change, but then I go back to doing my life and living my life exactly how I want to live. James is saying to these brethren, perhaps you need to wake up spiritually. You gotta stop playing games with yourself spiritually and have a true estimation of who you truly are. And that's why I love the fact that in James 1 20 through 22, he was having us look into the scriptures. We're not just listening to the person next to us who says one thing or another, we're listening to what God's word has to say about these issues. And we've got to become serious about who we are in relationship to God. Are we truly His children? Because a fountain does not send from the same opening both fresh and bitter water. It's almost like He's saying a, a, a claim to faith that doesn't produce, produce works is what He said in chapter 2. It's a dead faith. It's a non-saving faith. You can't claim to have something in your heart, but then everything that comes out of your mouth, meaning your life, is almost in contradiction to it. Hearts, tongues that are under the bit of the Lordship of Jesus Christ cannot and will not make a practice of producing works and deeds that are inconsistent with their new hearts, their new way of life, their new master. Can believers sin? Yes, we see in other passages throughout the Scripture. James isn't dealing with that issue here. He's drawing a very tight line, and he's wanting the brethren to give serious consideration of their ways. And we need to do the same thing. That's what God's Word would call us to do. Matthew Henry said it this way, true religion will not admit, excuse me, will not, yes, will not admit of contradictions in a truly religious man, can never allow of them either in his words or his actions. How many sins would this prevent and recover men from to put them upon being always consistent with themselves? James has demonstrated for us the very difficulty of taming the tongue, that no man can tame the tongue. Only Christ and a new heart will bring it and begin the process of taming of a tongue. So let's make it our pledge, church, to leave today and to be consistent with our walk and our talk, remembering that both are a reflection of our true heart. Let's commit to God to give him control as a bit over our tongue, over our hearts daily, therein giving us the ability to truly tame the tongue. To be quick to hear and slow to speak. Therein submitting our hearts to God's will being done both in our lives just as his will is always perfectly done in heaven. Amen? And listen, brethren, 
I'm just going to say this morning, if any of you are here this morning and you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you need to take a deep look at your life, listen, that's what we're here for. We love people, we love you, and we just want your life to be flourishing in Christ Jesus. And there's one way to do that, and it's in a walk with the Lord. If you want to know more about what it looks like to have a relationship with Christ, you can meet me right down here after service. I'm sometimes out in the back, up, catch me in between. Just find me. Don't leave. If it's a compelling issue upon your heart, you need to get things settled with God. Now's a good day to do it. Today's a great day of salvation. Always a great, every day is always a great day of salvation. Amen. Light shine, brethren. Glory to God. For God's sake. Let's pray.